The Addiction Podcast, Point of No Return, brought to you by Narconon Suncoast. Hello, Jason. Hello, Joni. Here we are again, another week. Another week, is, another week for the books. This is the Addiction Podcast, and this is episode 19. Oh, I can't believe we've been doing it so long. I know. That's incredible. And it's it's kind of interesting because we've done it here at this little studio we have. Mm-hmm. We've done it through Skype with you across the country. Mm-hmm. We've done it on Skype with me down the street because I'm right. busy at the center. <laughs> and it's just like, I can't believe all this time has gone by and all this stuff has happened and you've had grandkids and I know. shows you what 19 weeks can bring. I know. We've done it from L.A. I mean, I've been in L.A. and we've done it all yeah. the way. You said that already, but all the way across the country. We have some really good interviews coming up. Yes, we do. So why don't you uh, let people know what we got? Well, I don't know exactly when it'll be published, but tomorrow I'm going to interview the woman who founded Learn to Cope. And for anybody that's been listening, then they know that that is the support group that your parents, Pam and Jeff Good, found when you were going through your addiction problems. Yeah, and thank God they found that because, Mm -hmm. you know, I've said this a lot of times throughout this podcast and say it throughout just what I do for a living, but when a family goes through addiction... It ends up being one of the loneliest experiences that families can go through because when everything's real tough and things are going bad and you've got a child or a loved one that's an addict, in that instance and in that situation, you feel all alone. Right. Like nobody else could possibly be going through this. Right. My kid's got to be the worst one out there that's you know doing all this stuff and stealing and getting in trouble and losing jobs and failing out of school and all these things. Families don't realize that there are literally tens of thousands of other families going through that. So a tool like Learn to Cope is invaluable to them because I don't know what my parents would have done had they not found it. And I might not be sober and where I'm at today had they not gone to that group. Right. Because that group gave them specific advice from their own experience on how to do certain things with me as far as the tough love thing, sending me to any rehab as long as I got clean And different things like that. And so I almost owe my entire sobriety track to that group in in, in a sense. Wow. Because, yeah, I mean, they didn't know what to do. They didn't know how to deal with it. Right. And they taught them. And I, I think it's something that's really important for any family to do. Because at least if nothing else, you get into a room... That's all going to be a lot larger than you expected or thought up in your mind. And there's going to be a lot more families than you thought would right. be, are going to be there. Right. And at that moment in time, some hope gets generated. Yeah, because you know you're not alone. And yeah. so you know that there are other people who are going through this, hopefully have solutions, hopefully can offer you help. Well, anyway, so I'm going to talk to Joanne tomorrow. Yep. And... Um, she, I watched one of the videos that Learn to Cope has on YouTube, and the parents said exactly that. I didn't, we didn't want to talk to anybody. We wanted to kind of keep it a secret. We didn't want anybody to know, you know, and then they found the group and then they were able to, you know, get help and, and talk about it. Yeah. And it's the most unlikely people you'll see at those meetings because, you know, when I went to one of the, uh, I went to one of the Learn to Cope meetings like way back in the day, mm-hmm. and I actually did a talk. And I saw some people there that I've known my entire life wow. that I didn't know had someone dealing with a date. One of them was a woman that cleaned my teeth for years when I was like a teenager wow. at the dentist's office, and her kid was an addict. And it's like a lot of people you don't realize are dealing with this that you yep. know very well, that you deal with on a day-to-day basis, but there's no other venue where you'd ever talk about it. I think there's probably way more than any of us know, which... 
you know, uh, at the risk of sounding redundant, it's why we do this podcast yeah. because I think because it's such a big problem and we all know somebody. We just don't know it necessarily. But right. I, I can just about guarantee if you if I were to walk, you know, down the street that there's probably somebody that has a family member that's dealing with addiction because it's so prevalent in our society. Yeah. And you know, it's not it's the the other the other thing is this for my family at least, this wasn't something that was real foreign because I think my mom said it um during their interview that we did. Uh, her stepbrother was a drug addict. And, you know, growing up, it's funny because it was always like, you know, don't do as Uncle Steven does. Don't do what he does. I mean, this is a smart guy. He had uh, a master's degree in marine biology from Johns Hopkins University, but he was a crack addict. Wow. And, and that, again, I, brings up the point that it's it, not just like illiterate a, people. Or no, it's people. not. a It's a non-prejudicial thing. Mm-hmm. It doesn't matter who you are. You know, at another center that I worked with for a long time we had a guy come through who was a physician and he had lost his medical license because he had been found by his nurses in his office um, in like at about eight o'clock in the morning after he had passed out the night before from giving himself a Demerol IV. Wow. You know, it doesn't matter. And you who, go, what, what, are, what are you thinking? You're a doctor for Christ. Right. I mean, and you've got lawyers addicted to cocaine. Yeah. You've got wall, the wall street tycoons addicted to cocaine. Other, you know, amphetamine stimulants to keep going and work a lot you've got tons of you know kids that were injured playing sports in high school later on life hooked on heroin Mm -hmm. i mean drugs are so prevalent nowadays and we're bombarded with that idea that taking drugs is okay right i mean everywhere you look i mean i know we talk about this a lot tv commercials take ask your doctor about this yeah take ask your doctor about this every time you turn around they're they're touting a new drug and they're not so much addressing the drugs to depression now as they are to pain relief, but it's the same drug that they were marketing for depression a year ago. There was one that drove my dad crazy. And for my dad to have this kind of reaction about a drug is real funny. There was a drug that he saw being advertised on TV that is supposed to be given for opiate-induced constipation. Oh, right. Yes. Yeah. And it's like, they, I can't Wait believe- a second. Why not just stop taking the opioid? Why would they make a medication for that except, you know, just stop taking opiates? Yeah. I mean, that seems to be it's the a- most logical thing to do. I know. It's like, hello. Yeah. But I mean, that's also like the same idea of like taking cogentin with an antipsychotic because, you know, you have an antipsychotic drug that causes like a laundry list of permanent side effects, one of which is called tardive dyskinesia, mm-hmm. um, which is uh, permanent neurological damage from the drug. But you have to take cogentin with a thing like Haldol, for instance, to keep from those things from happening. So it's kind of like the same thought process is like we have a drug and it has side effects. So to handle the side effects, we're going to create another drug to handle those side effects. But on top of that, that second drug has side effects. So we're going to make a third drug to handle that drug that handles the first drug. Yeah. And so you get people on multiple medications, which could all be done away with if they could just get rid of the one that started it in the first place. But you know what the sick part is? We societally Americans, we want this stuff mm-hmm. like really badly. Mm-hmm. Like we really like drugs we were a completely drug society we crave them i mean i i think i've said this before as well but i mean the united states consumes 80 percent of the opiate supply in the world that's right uh, we consume more drugs in the united states than any other country on the planet you know we were once this like really progressive nation and we're like on the cutting edge of everything and now it's like people in foreign countries are looking over at us like 
where did they go wrong? Because they've got mo- a bunch of their citizens completely hooked on drugs. Not only that people are buying illegally off the streets, but it's like the the um, the legal system will mandate people on drugs. Yeah. The doctors are handing out drugs like candy. You know, you've got rehabilitation centers out there that their idea of treatment is just, we're just going to just take your meds and go back to your room and hang out and right. hopefully you'll be okay. Right. And the other side of it is that we want this it's you know sometimes i like to believe that you know most of our society is like drugged against its will but it's not it's like right. we are conditioned to ask for drugs when we That's go to right. the doctor and most of the time when people go to the doctors because they need drugs or they they have this going on so they know that this medication handles it so i'm gonna go to the doctor and ask for it and i'm probably gonna leave with that and then probably two more and it's like we have this like unquenchable thirst for drugs in this country and that part is like i don't get it my take on it is, and this may sound very simplistic, um, but my take on it is, is that I think that because life has been so good in this country for so long, that when things start to go a little bit wrong, I think that the average Joe cannot confront it, cannot confront the girlfriend breaking up with him or cannot confront the teacher who is a little bit harsh and or cannot confront the fact that dad wants the kid to be a doctor and the kid wants to be a rock star right and can't you know confront being able to sit down and talk to mom and dad and say i'm not happy i don't know what to do but i'm not happy and and then you have the other side of it with a parent who cannot confront having that tough conversation with their kid. Mm-hmm. And so it just, you know, it's like it becomes, a, oh, well, I'll just take a pill. And then I really don't have to confront anything because, you know, it, and it's funny because if, if I think about it, like a drug addict has to find the money, find the drug mm-hmm. in order to not get really sick. That's less confrontable to me than to- <laughs> and not to taking, talk to somebody about right. something, you know? But, but it's, it's interesting. But it's what you said right there. People, a lot of the time, complain about, I'm not happy, or I don't feel good, mm-hmm. or I'm sad. Here's, here's reality. Sometimes in life, you're not happy, and you are sad, and things can cause you to momentarily be a little depressed. And, you know, but that's life. Mm-hmm. And... What we've done is we've medicalized everything. Every normal human emotion, the ups and the downs, are no longer considered okay or normal to feel because, oh, well, you don't have to feel that way. But it's like, you know, by design, people are humans. We're hedonistic creatures. We're pleasure seekers. We want to escape pain as fast as humanly possible to get whatever good feeling it is that we'd rather have. Right. But what reality needs to crash down on humanity as a whole and have people realize sometimes life is not fun. Sometimes life is, you've got difficult things to deal with and hard things to confront and things you might not want to confront. And, you know, with those lows are, are highs Mm -hmm. and those are really good, but we need to be okay with the fact that life isn't peaches and cream every single day. Right. Because if it was, I mean, I don't think that How would be that. Is that it is kind of boring <laughs> because it's like everything kind of stays at this static euphoric thing, you know, every day, and that doesn't make sense because nothing stays static. You're right. either moving forward or you're moving backward, and 
the fact of the matter is sometimes life is hard, but popping a pill or taking a drug is the way we've been taught somehow to deal with it. Right. And it's not a, it's not a good solution as I, we know. No. And, and what's the, and you know, but what's the, what's the result of all that? It's, you know, look around you. I mean, <laughs> yep. drug use is off the charts now. Yep. We're at the point where we have, you know, basically two epidemics happening. We've got the methamphetamine building to the point where I'm getting ready to call it an epidemic. And then, of course, we've got the opiate crisis, which is like, I mean, it's everywhere. Yeah. You know, I was at, uh, it was a couple of weeks ago, I was at Mies Dunedin, which is the emergency room that's in, uh, in the, the next town over. Yeah. And right when you walk in, um, there's a plaque like a sign actually out front that says attention anyone come here to get opiates we're not going to give you anything to take home and we don't use dilaudid oxycontin vicodin or other uh quote-unquote habit forming or highly abused opiates here um just to give them fair warning before they come in and try to seek drugs because a lot of addicts will do that yes they will feign some condition or intentionally hurt themselves right to go into an emergency room to be, you know, be prescribed drugs, Boy. and at least they're being like real upfront, like we're not going to give you anything because that's not, it's not good medicine, right? To just see people over and over and over again and just keep giving them pain meds, right? That's not what a doctor is supposed to do. You know, a doctor takes a Hippocratic oath, right. to do no harm, right? Right, but you have to kind of look at it like. How many of these doctors have violated that oath that exists out there? Because, I mean, think about the amount of doctors in the midst of the pill mill epidemic. Oh, yeah. When the pill mills got shut down, how many of them are now in prison? Yeah. Because they were just making money hand over fist selling drugs well, to that people was... just for cash. But Right. But yeah. that's what happens when you're in a healthcare position. Mm-hmm. Like you're in a position where you're supposed to help people. Mm-hmm. But making money becomes your sole priority right. instead of helping people. Right. Like I feel like if you're going to be a doctor or you're going to be a nurse or you're going to work in drug rehab, your goal has to be to help people. Right. Your goal can't Not be... Not to make money at right. it. Right. Yeah. And there's one... Uh, Not that you can't get paid, but that can't be the end all. You, you have to have the goal to help people. Right. Because otherwise, if your purpose is to make money, the, the domino effect that follows that is, can be catastrophic because... You know, you've got doctors ending up, ending up in prison. And you've also got these for-profit treatment centers out there that are supposed to be, quote-unquote, helping people, but really aren't. And they're in the business of making money. See, that's the difference between nonprofit treatment centers and for-profit treatment centers. There's tons of for-profit treatment centers, meaning that they're purpose really realistically is, is to, to make, make a money profit, of make money you and, were mentioning one of those is that the one that you were talking about yeah uh, you know what happens is is that okay so a smart businessman and i and i say this and it still turns my stomach by saying smart businessman but a, a person that's money driven would look at the opiate crisis and see a way that there's got to be you know a very good way to make money off all the addiction out there and so what these people do is they invest and, and open up these treatment centers and they open like these five star luxury, you know, opulent centers with all the bells and whistles and offer, you know, equine therapy, which I don't know if you know what that is. It's when you, you kind of play with horses as a way of getting clean. It's kind of like the, the wilderness one. Yeah, they do, yeah. they do acupuncture and yoga and martial arts. And you've got, you know, your high colonic therapies and then you've got your group therapies and, and um, individual counseling kind of sprinkled in there. And it basically looks like a five-star resort. Right. And 
if you get, and a lot of these, the price tag is insane. Most of these places are roughly about 25000 a month. Wow. Most people are in treatment for a couple, you know, two to three months. Right. And so, you know, 25000 a month. Okay. So you're looking, if you're there for three months, you've spent $75,000. And so for a family to take their loved one and stick them in this kind of center with that kind of price tag, you're probably assuming your loved one is going to receive the most highest quality treatment possible. And get cleaned and sober. And get clean and sober. And what ends up happening in some of these centers is that they're so money-driven and not help-driven that once they get the money in, there's really no help being given. And so one of these headlines I read was there's a center, there was a couple centers in Massachusetts that are owned by Recovery Centers of America. Mm. And there's one specific one that's in Danvers, Massachusetts, which is a town a little bit north of Boston. And they have this beautiful center. I mean, beautiful. It's like ridiculous looking. I saw pictures of it mm-hmm. on the website. And all these complaints started rolling in. Now, first of all, a couple of people died in their center. Second of all... Okay, there's your first red flag. There's a red flag. Hello. Right. The other thing is that there were all these reports being sent to the state, but they were being sent from fired employees and people that spoke up about it right. and got fired. And then they sent reports over to uh, the, the the public health agency in Massachusetts. And so all these reports started coming in. And so the state came in and actually investigated this place and basically corroborated a lot of these reports from these staff members that had worked there. And uh, basically you've got, Patients kind of roaming around freely, not being monitored, um, not being helped. There's non-existent therapy. There's no individual therapy happening. There's no group therapy happening. Wow. There's sex among the patients. People are selling their pills for money and sexual favors to each other. You had uh, no treatment happening. Wow. Nothing. You had nothing nothing going on there. And... You know, and the other thing was they were completely understaffed. So they had about, I think it was like, I can't remember specifically how many patients they had. They had a bunch and not nearly enough staff to handle the workload of dealing. And, you know, when you work in rehab, families are trusting you with a 24 hour care and safety of of their, of their family member. That means you have to have the staff to do that. Yeah. And so the place was completely understaffed to handle it. And so, you know, you've got situations like that where people get sucked into this trap that they're offered the world and aren't, aren't delivered it. Right. And when a family sends a loved one to rehab, the day the family member enrolls and is admitted into the rehab, a sense of relief comes over the family. Yes. Now they can sleep without right. worrying the phone's going to ring and something, right. you know, some terrible communications can come from the other end. Right. Or that the police are going to knock at the door or the person's going to die in their bed down the hall. Right. All that goes away because you, they assume the person's they're in treatment, they're safe, and they're being taken care of. Right. And so to take people's money and to take their family member in and not help them. It's just criminal. It's very criminal. It's criminal. And it's disgusting. And they're all over the television, aren't they? Recovery Centers of America? They are. They have they have a very catchy eight hundred number, which is like you hear it once and you'll never forget it. Right. And I'm not gonna say it on this no. on this podcast. I don't want anyone calling them. Right. And uh Again, I can't imagine they would after what I said, but just regardless. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> and I think it's disgusting because I know for a fact what we do at Narconon. Right. We are probably on the cheapest end of the spectrum and all the money that's brought in when for 
people's program fees is put back into to delivering a great program and keeping people sober, obviously, while they're there and after they leave so they can turn their lives around and actually have a shot at leaving some sort of decent existence on this planet while they're here. Right. And so for me to read a headline like that, it's like, to me, it's out of control because this is what I imagine. This is what I mock up in my head is that you've got these entrepreneurs that invested in this in, in this rehab and they're like off in an office somewhere, off on a yacht, you know, counting their money as all this craziness is happening at the center and, and they don't care right? because they're doing it for money. Because they're making a profit. Because it's profitable. And that's the part that bothers me yep. is that you've got these really greedy people that are basically victimizing families in need mm-hmm. by giving them a false sense of hope and promising a certain program, not delivering it and taking their money. And these people aren't going to do well when they leave. Well, I mean, they're really they're really no better than the drug dealers no, or you, the drug pushers. I mean, they're no better than that. They're no better than the pharmaceutical companies who are pushing the legal, you know, Oxycontin or what have you, paying, you know, giving doctors perks to prescribe the drugs. Yeah. They are no different. It's a scam is what it is. It is. It's a complete scam because, you know, you're, you're, you end up on the phone with these centers with a great salesman. They tell you everything they want you want to hear and offer you exactly what you're looking for and they don't give it to you. Well, and then you get a program like Narconon, for example, and people distrust it because they've had an experience because of like stuff this. like this yeah and I, and I was thinking that that it kind of puts a, it kind of tarnishes the rehab industry and i hate yes. to call it industry but i mean it, it's an industry whatever and uh you know you've got people that call and are immediately defensive when mm-hmm. you get on the phone with them because they've had an experience yeah. like this at another center yeah. where the place was so interested in taking their money not helping their loved one that they spent 50 you know 60 70,000 dollars the person came home within 2 days they relapsed now they're looking for treatment again and don't want to make the same mistake so right. uh, these for profit you know money hungry treatment centers they make it hard for everybody they make it really else. hard for us really to do, do our jobs yeah. because you've got so many people on guard or you've got people that call hoping you're a free rehab because the last place took every dime the family had left right and uh, it's it's appalling yeah. to me, and you know, and, and Narconon can't operate as a free rehab. It just can't, and it shouldn't. You know, I mean, what you guys deliver there is, you know, is priceless, really. Well, I mean, yeah, there's overhead when mm-hmm. it comes to yeah. treatment center. You have to keep the lights on. You have to keep everyone fed. You have to keep the staff a little bit of money in their pocket, right? And you know, keep it going. I mean, I wouldn't want government funding. No. Because it, t- it turns into something really weird. Because then it becomes government regulation. And, and then that can be, you know, the oversight sometimes can be really bad. And, well, government yeah. regulation means that you can only do the government approved treatment modalities, which are 12-step meetings. Right. Uh, psychotropic drugging and medically assisted treatment, meaning you're going to go on Suboxone or Methadone or some other replacement drug to you know take the place of the drugs you were taking. And so we agree with none of that. And, right. so, <laughs> and so, you know, I wouldn't want that. However... Yeah. You know, at least the, the silver lining in a little bit of this is that the state shut down their admissions lines. Oh, good. At this rehab, temp- at least temporarily, until they really do a little bit more of a deeper investigation of what's happening, uh, and uh, as they should. Yes. Because what's going on there is terrible. Yeah. That's, and uh, it's just awful well, that's to the, do that to people who are, you know, whose lives are being, you know, they're devastated when they bring a loved one there, you know, and to do that, you know, to in the name of help, that is just beyond criminal. And, you not, know? and not helping. That's the part that gets me the it, most. It's like, at least give them something yeah. to work with. At yeah. least give them treatment. Yeah. I mean, if you're going to make money off people, okay, at least deliver 
a stellar product, right? at least deliver the highest quality treatment capable. But instead, these people are taking the money, sticking in the in you know several people on the board director's bank accounts, while the treatment center literally has no staff, has a bunch of patients that aren't being taken care of, people are getting hurt, and no one's getting better. Right. And so that's one of the things that bothers me as a rehab professional is to see stuff like that happening that actually distracts people away from like real help that exactly. actually exists out there. Yeah. And so families take take that loss really, really hard. Yes. I mean, there's nothing worse than, okay, so backtrack, I was saying, you know, the the biggest sense of relief a family that's dealing with addiction gets is the, the second that person enrolls in treatment. The worst feeling, it's worse than that, is when they relapse after treatment, which happens. Right. You know, and in other modalities, it happens more often than in other modalities. Right. And there's nothing, there's nothing worse than that. And there's nothing worse than a family giving their last penny to one of these for-profit places, and now they're stuck with no options for real help. Right. And that bothers me a little bit. It, it bothers me a lot because, like I say, it puts them – you know, they're spending all of this money on advertising and setting themselves up as being the authority. And they don't have a technology that works. And whatever technologies do exist, they're not using them. So they're not, as you say, they're not producing a product. They're not producing someone who is clean and sober and has the tools to stay that way. And it's it's criminal. It really is. They should not only have their admission lines shut down, they should be shut down, period. And made to refund the money to the people who paid it. In a perfect world, that would happen. I know. Unfortunately, the world we live in is far from perfect. <laughs> far from perfect. You think? <laughs> yeah. It just, this is where we've come to. And now we're at the point where we've got li- little kids hooked on opiates. Little kids. I know. Like, I, I don't know. I can't remember if I talked about this. I might have touched on it. But, you know, last week I, I, I saw a news story of a 13-year-old in New Jersey that died from a heroin fentanyl overdose. And now it's like... Okay, now it's getting ridiculous because when the opiate crisis started, it was mostly people in their 20s or 30s or adults. And as the, the opiate crisis progressed, the, the age kids were getting onto this stuff got younger and younger. And now we're at the point where a mother found her 13-year-old son dead in his bed. I, I just, I can't, that's just devastating. I can't even conceive of what that would be like. It's, just, it's unbelievable. It's uh, it's just uh, it's it's sad that we have to have that type of story to get more and more people to wake up to the fact that yo we have a problem and yo you need to be aware of it no matter how old your child is. Yeah, you know. Now get this in in there's an interview done with this kid's mom. And she said, you know, it's, it's hard for me to believe that he's overdosed on drugs because I haven't seen any signs or symptoms that would indicate to me that he was that he was on drugs. Now, if a kid is shooting up or using heroin and fentanyl, there, ha- there had to be symptoms. There had to be indicators that he was using. Now, it also came out that the kid had been dealing with bullying right. at school and so in my mind, it's like, okay, this kid's bullied at school. Someone comes up to him and he's having a bad day from it and says, hey, try this and gets hooked on opiates. I can see that happening. Yes. Like that, it's not logical, but like but do they logistically know how- that makes sense about how that could occur. Yeah, but do they know how, how long he was taking drugs? The mom had no idea he was on drugs until he overdosed <clears throat> on them and died. So that's the part that I don't get is 
you don't just start on heroin and fentanyl. You don't go from doing no opiates to doing heroin and fentanyl. It does, it, the progression doesn't work like that because it'll kill you. If you're not used to opiates, so you have no tolerance for it. Like you haven't been like warming your body up with Oxycontin and Vicodin and stuff. If you take a little bit of heroin and fentanyl, it's going to kill you because your mm-hmm. body won't. It just it's it's too much, too strong for your body to handle. So, which tells me that this kid had to be using drugs for a, at least a good amount of time to get himself to the point where he ended up on heroin and fentanyl. But, so he was, eventually sh- killed he was him. shooting up? I, I don't know. I don't think it said how he was taking okay. it. It just said that that's what was found is the cause of his death. Right. And so, but the part that bothers me is this mother literally went on record and said, I saw no symptoms that he was using. So I was never alarmed to anything. In my head, it's like, that's not possible unless you were completely not present not focused on your child or paying attention to what he's doing. Right. Because. You'd know. You, I'd know. You would know. I would, you would know. see it. You would and I would also know if my child were being bullied, that that would be something that I would take a personal interest in and be visiting the school and be determining what exactly was going on and what was happening to sort it out. Right. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. And the other, the other thing that came up was like, so the two weeks prior to his death, there had been bullying at school, and he had also been found. I guess he was cutting himself, right? Like, like, per, like self harming. Now, the interesting thing is that cutting yourself, the self harm that people will do, is a lot of times comes concurrent with opiate addiction because what a person is doing when they're cutting themselves, a lot of times they're trying to release endorphins, which uh, doing opiates gives you a fake sense of getting. Because endor- you lost me. Okay, so endorphins are natural painkillers that your brain secretes when you're in physical and emotional pain. Oh, so you got to put yourself in pain. So you got to put yourself so in pain and get that pain. endorphin I release. I see, I see. Yeah, um, that, that was what I was thinking. But yeah. Something about endorphins and I lost it. Okay. Well, so, uh, so it's funny. With all the drugs out there, there's a neurochemical that mimics, that the drugs mimic. That's endorphins. Like, so endorphins, okay. Okay. so heroin mimics endorphins to your brain. Like your brain doesn't know you just got a, a big dose of heroin necessarily, but it definitely knows you got a big dose of something that thinks are endorphins right. and they're hitting the opiate receptors. Okay. You know, you've got the stimulant drugs that will mimic dopamine. You've got, you know, other things out there that mimic each other in your brain. And so sometimes your brain can't tell the difference. So if your brain thinks it's getting this huge surplus of endorphins or some neurochemical, it stops producing it on its own. So that's why a lot of people, you know, when they uh, when they come off cocaine or they come off meth, they bottom out their dopamine levels. Okay. And dopamine is an excitatory neurochemical. It's what makes you feel good and gives you reward in life. And people commonly come off stimulant drugs like cocaine and uh, and meth, and all of a sudden they get no enjoyment out of life. They're very depressed. Nothing feels good. It's because their body stopped producing dopamine. Right. And so by getting sober, you can you know do different things to kickstart your body's natural production of its neurochemicals again. And with uh, heroin, it's endorphins. And so a lot of uh, opiate addicts will actually cut themselves to get that endorphin release and that r- little bit right. of that rush. And right. so... Well, I the first thing you have is you have the bullying. And assuming that this was known about, the bullying was known about. Okay. So that would be a red flag for me, mm-hmm. that I would take some kind of action. I'm not right. sure exactly what, but I would be all over that. Then if my kid was cutting himself... We're into a whole different universe there. Absolutely. Whether I know that there's drugs involved, we're into a whole heavy-duty handling of some kind at that point because that's not normal. That's not normal activity. Mm-mm. Okay. Not normal activity. 
And the thing is, is it seems like this mother was just utterly unaware of what was happening in her kid's life. But she's aware now, so well, now he's dead. Yeah. Now, now so she, now they yeah, look so back now and she's aware out. because all this all this came up since the kid died. And now more than ever, parents need to take a very active role in their kids' lives. Yeah. You know, uh me and Yvonne, my coworker at Narcon, just yep. did a seminar over um in downtown Clearwater about how to talk to your kids about drugs. Okay. And you know, one that's a conversation a lot of parents either don't have or don't want to have or don't know how to do it so it doesn't get done or it doesn't get done effectively. And the other thing is that parents need to take a real strong interest in their kids now because of how easy it is for them to end up on drugs. That's right. That's exactly right. It's like... You can't just assume that because you as a parent know that drugs are not good and you as a parent know that you're not going to go down and shoot up heroin, you can't assume... That your child knows better if you have not actively been teaching them about it or talking to them about it. You can't assume that. You no, know, I think you... so often parents just assume, well, I'm a good upstanding person, therefore my kid is too. What makes you think that? Uh, they are by proxy, I guess. I, I, yeah, you know, and your kid is spending seven hours at school. They're not around you for those seven hours. Mm-hmm. What do you think they're being taught? Unless you go and you look and you find out or question them about it, you know? Right. Yeah, you're right. P- your parents need to take an active role. And you know what I think? And this is an opinionated statement. I think there's a lot of parents out there that don't talk to their kids about drugs because they did drugs when they were young. Yeah. And so I'm not going to say it's like a blind spot for them, but almost – it. I, it almost is in a way because, like, I've heard parents say, well, how can I tell my kid not to do drugs when I did drugs, you know, through my teens and early 20s? You know. Be- and because, you know, here's the thing is that the- people are just – people are going to use drugs and hopefully they won't get addicted and hopefully they don't try the hard drugs and they only stick to pot and alcohol and LSD. You know, I've heard this crazy stuff from <laughs> from parents. I- and it's like um, you can absolutely tell your kids to not do drugs even if you have done drugs because here's the thing. Good thing you didn't end up on coke, crack, meth, or heroin, but they might. Right. And they need some guidance. Like, kids can't be expected to make the correct decision all the time. Right. Without some sort of guidance. So, I I mean, if any parents are listening, it's like, even if you did drugs in your early years, it doesn't mean you can't talk to your kids about them not doing drugs because one your hit your past is not necessarily their business first of all the other thing is that if you don't talk to them about drugs someone at school is gonna exactly that's someone, what i'm saying someone you're there at the seven ga- eight hours and and they're not with you so yeah, someone at the gas station is going to yeah a doctor might talk to your kid about drugs wait right well and here's the thing too it's um, not the, what you want them to hear about drugs no it's i know and polar, here's the thing too par- parents need to realize we're in a different scene now than we were, mm-hmm. okay? I grew up in the 70s, okay? So there was LSD, which I never did, but there was marijuana, and it was, you know, it was socially done. I maybe two times had a marijuana brownie, okay? But as we've discussed, the marijuana of today is not the marijuana of the 1970s. No. The other thing is... You know, my parents introduced me to wine. I think I was 15 or 16 years old. Okay. And so I was in high school in England. It was a high school for American military kids. 
I can absolutely tell you that I drove my little car, my parents' little car, on the roads in the back roads of England, not in London, but on the back roads of England, intoxicated. Um, You know, if you got caught at that point, you might get your hand slapped unless you injured somebody other than yourself. Today... If you're caught drinking and driving, it's it it's worse. There's way more consequences, and we went. Th- but we went through that exact thing with both of our boys in terms of alcohol, not drugs. Drugs, mm-hmm. there was no question, you know. But because both of us drank when we were underage, you know, we had a little bit of that. Hmm. But we never once backed off of it because bottom line. It's illegal. Mm-hmm. It's illegal to drink underage. It's illegal. You don't want to get arrested. You don't want it on your record. It's illegal. Do you know? And yeah. I, we never let up on it because the the consequences today, I'm not saying it was okay for us to do it because it wasn't, but the consequences today are way, way worse. Smoking marijuana today is way worse than what we had in the 70s. You know, there's so many more drugs available now. They yeah. just are that were not available when I was a teenager, you know? Right. So you, it's a different scene out there. You have to be a way more hands-on parent. You just have to. You have to take an active role in your kids' lives. You have to take an even more active role than maybe your parents did. Because right. it is a different scene. Kids are being introduced to drugs. I'm sorry. Well, first of all, we already talked about this. When I was in school... There was no ADD. There was no ADHD. There were, it, nobody would ever thought of putting their kid on Ritalin or something like that, you know? And nowadays it's so common, although now they have different drugs, you know, to do, to use it. But you you wouldn't hear about a 13-year-old ODing no. when I was a kid. You just wouldn't. It you- is a different scene. And even if your parents were not as involved mm-hmm. in your life when you were little... It doesn't matter. It's not the same scene out there. And you have to be more active in your kids' lives. You have to. You have to talk to them more. And, and you know, the unfortunate part is, there's, so there's all this going on. There's all this happening. All these terrible news stories and these awful news headlines and these awful statistics. But <laughs> the crisis, as far as opiates go, doesn't show signs of slowing down right. at all. Actually, things are like... Things will kind of like marginally get better in some communities, followed by the next month, it's like way worse than it was three months ago. And so there's no signs of this stopping. And it seems like there's these weird little innovative things that come out every now and then to perpetuate it. Uh, one of which I came across was a opiate, gen- it's a genetic test, like a kit, um, that you can test yourself to see which opiate you're genetically predisposed to be uh, more receptive to. I don't get that. <laughs> so basically, it, it I, tells I mean, the I don't doctor even get how that would it, work. It, it, I'm it not act- predisposed at all to. It tells the doctor what opiate you'll respond best to. Wow. Yeah, but I mean, it's like it's it's stuff like that that keeps this thing going because now you've just given a tool to a physician to prescribe a specific narcotic to you. Um, well, doc, I mean, my genetic test right here says that um, the 80 milligram oxy, Oxycontins are what I'm genetically um, predisposed to respond better to. So I don't want that 
ibuprofen. I don't want that Vicodin. And I, don't, I don't even, I don't even want that Norco. I, I want that Oxycom. My, my test here that I'm showing you is saying you're supposed to give this to me because genetically, this is what's best. Like that's some weird stuff. Yeah, but you said it earlier, Jason. It's the same thing as what's happening with the for-profit rehab centers in Danvers, Massachusetts. It's all about the money. Yeah. And it's like, how can we make more money? Well, now we can do a genetic test and we can charge hundreds of thousands of dollars for it. Mm-hmm. Maybe hundreds of dollars, not hundreds of thousands. And insurance will pay for it. Insurance mm-hmm. will cover it. Sure. And then, of course, insurance covers the drug that I'm going to give him. Right. And I get perks. I'm the doctor, so I get perks from the pharmaceutical company. So, hey, it's all good. And it's whether, all whether, and about whether, the money. And whether those perks are on paper or not. Because, yeah. you know, there's some states that have like outlawed that from being able to happen, but I'm sure it still happens. I am sure they get around it. I am sure yeah. they get around it. I mean, realtors, for example, can't pay a com- can't pay you a commission if you bring them someone to buy a house. Right. They can't do that. But a basket of fruit or a basket of wine? Sure. Hey, okay. I mean, my dad was a doctor. You know, he's still a doctor. And, yeah. you know, I remember uh, when I was growing up that he would frequently, he and my mother would go out to these like extravagant dinners with these drug reps. Right. That would wine him and dine him and take him out golfing and all sorts right. of stuff and blah, 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 just to get him to use get, the drugs. You know, use the drugs. The drug and yeah. use it. It's, um, it's about the money. That That's really where it is. And I think that it's just so unfortunate that people would think to profit off of addicts. It's so distasteful it's just it is no different than the pusher down there pushing the kids on the drugs it's money and it's money and drugs that is the fuel with which our society kind of propels itself on because i mean those are the two main interests in the united states is is what it seems to me is that the two main interests are drugs and money yep and they kind of go hand in hand with each other exactly and if we keep going this way we're going to end up in a really odd dystopian society. You know, it was funny. There's a movie that came out like a long time ago. Uh, it was called Idiocracy. It's like a real stupid movie, mm-hmm. but it made some valid points. And what it did is it showed our society actually evolved to get dumber mm. instead of evolving to you know, become smarter, more enlightened yeah. to the point where we as humans completely destroyed society, destroyed the planet and did all this stuff. Like they, in the movie, they show the farmers feeding Gatorade. To all the uh, to the crops and all the crops are dying. Like, why won't the crops survive? It's like right. because you're supposed to give them water. Right. <laughs> uh, it, it was just, it's a funny movie, but it, it it made some valid points. And I thought like that's almost like that's almost happening. Right. As I I always had this weird notion over the last few years that I feel like society's progressively we're getting dumber mm-hmm. and we're getting dumbed mm-hmm. down from all these drugs. Yep. There were most of the people out there are on, and there's some the enlightened few that have said, you know what, I'm not gonna take any of that right actually you know i'm gonna like keep that as far away from me as possible to see what's doing all these people over here right and uh you know those are the smart people you know we have to be free thinkers Mm -hmm. as individuals and we can't allow tv commercials doctors and some of these you know money hungry rehabilitation centers make our decisions for us that's right we have to we have to have minds of our own and think for ourselves and not believe everything we're told you know a very smart person once told me question everything yeah yeah question everything don't take what one person says or one um opinion leader in your world says or what anyone says to be gospel you should question everything and the smartest people out there and the ones that survive will question 
everything. That's right. Question what you're being told. That's exactly right. That's you know, exactly right. Because if you don't, we just turn into one of those, you know, societal automatons that goes around, takes their drugs and goes to work and does their thing and gives their kid the drugs that the teacher said that the doctor said they should have. And that's right. You know, we turn into this crazy society where we're all on drugs and that's where we're going. Right. And that's the other movie that I mentioned one time, which is Equilibrium. Oh, right. Which is the one with Christian Bale where everybody takes their pill every day. Nobody's supposed to feel anything. That's the whole thing. Anyway, it's not all doom and gloom, though. That's not, why we're here. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, I, I don't like to you know, think that I sit here and you sit there and we talk and then there's people on the other end that are like, oh my God, this is depressing. The silver lining in all of this is that the more people that you and I can enlighten yes, and the more people that we enlighten that then can go enlighten other people mm-hmm. and it keeps spreading like a ripple effect – that's how we're going to fix this. That's we right. all have to get enlightened about, one, what's really going on, two, the fact that it doesn't have to happen, right. and three, that you know, if someone is found to be in the grips of all this that's happening, that there's help available right. to undo the damage and put the family back together and you know, have everyone move forward and have a normal life. That's right. I always told people, you know, addiction is one of those conditions that's completely preventable. Mm-hmm. It, it is yes it's not one of those things that's like you can only handle it after it's happened it's like no 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 the key to drug rehabilitation first is to prevent addiction from ever happening exactly like you can't prevent cancer i mean they think you can and you know if you eat well and stuff but the truth of the matter is there are some cancers that are somewhat genetic and inherited and you're going to get it and and you don't know until you've got it but you're right addiction is a completely different story and it's preventable it's completely preventable and the way it's preventable is honestly through the things that you and i talk about right in the first line of defense against addiction for you know our up and coming generations of kids are the parents. Right. And education and continuous. You have to be continuously vigilant with your children. Yeah. You just have to do that. And if your child has become an addict or you suspect that they're an addict, that's when you can pick up the phone and call Narconon. I mean, seriously. 1 339 3324. Call Narconon. It's completely anonymous. And get help and get hope. I mean, that's why we're talking about this. Yeah, and I always tell people, you know, even if, you know, we can't help you at Narcanon, we will find something for you. We have additional resources for anybody. Exactly. And so if anyone's out there that needs any kind of help, assistance, or just guidance in the right direction, give us a call. Call that number or go to narcanonsuncoast.org and and contact Narcanon because... I know you've been listening to Jason. There's other people there at Narcan on Suncoast, just like Jason, who I hear every time I hear an addict complete the program and graduate, they thank every single staff member at Narcan on because y'all know Jason. You don't know the other staff members there, but I can tell you one for one, they care. They want to help. They are there to help the addict become clean and sober. And that's what they do. And they're not in it for the money. I can tell you that right now. No. You know, I always told people that if I, if I, <laughs> if I wanted to make a ton of money, I came into the wrong profession because exactly. that's not what I'm driven to do. Exactly. And you can't be. Nope. You, you can't, you can't do that. It's not the you, goal. No, that's no. not the goal. It's not the end all be all. It's not the end all be all of life. Exactly. Life is not all about, you know, the fancy toys and 
cars and houses and stuff. You know, there's something to be said about the satisfaction you get when you lay your head down every day to know that you might have changed somebody's lives. Saved lives. I mean, yeah. look at the lives that you save, Jason, whether you're doing an intervention or whether you're, you know, helping parents or even when you're going to retrieve someone who maybe fell off a little bit mm-hmm. after they completed the program. I mean, you are cha- you are saving lives and changing lives. And that's why you guys do it. And that is so obvious from not only you, but everybody I've met there, everybody we've talked to on this web on this podcast it's it it's the way it's supposed to be it's not supposed to be about the money and that's you know that's an education process and we're going to keep educating people about it because we have to and speaking of education i forgot to tell you this so i'm just gonna break this news to you on the air okay so my aunt mm-hmm. teaches health classes at a public school in long island and apparently she plays this podcast for her class really? Yeah, so if Aunt Rhonda, if you're listening, hello, and thank you for playing this for everybody, because like you and I say, it's very important that we teach kids young about what is really happening in the world about drugs, what the dangers of drug use are in the first place, and to know that whatever you're going through in life, drugs don't have to be the solution to that. Exactly. Great message. Great message. That's great. Thanks, Aunt Rhonda. (laughs) So tomorrow I'm going to interview Joanne, and yes. we'll probably talk about that next week. Um, we also have an upcoming interview with a woman who is a pharmacologist. That will be next week, and she's going to talk about what she sees because she uses pharmacy-grade essential oils, minerals, and vitamins to help people get off certain drugs that you can't just stop taking, which we've talked about before. So we've got some great interviews coming up. And in the meantime, you and I are going to keep telling the story. What? Yeah, well, let's plug the Learn to Cope website. Oh, yes. So the website that this lovely lady Joanne Peterson founded and how Jason's parents got help is called Learn to, the number two, cope. Dot org, learn to cope.org. And there are chapters in Massachusetts and in Florida. And I think it said there's one in the Midwest. But um, and it's also a big online community. And it's a big online community. So that's definitely a good resource for you. So check that out. Jason. Till next time. Till next time. And we'll see ya. Okay. You have been listening to the Addiction Podcast, Point of No Return. For more information, call 877-339-3324 or visit www.narcononsuncoast.org. Narconon is a non-12-step rehabilitation program based on the works of L. Ron Hubbard. 